Hey, 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 you guys, it's Rob, Rob Liefeld with another Rob Observations. This is Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. We are coming at you again. We love to talk comics. I have been making comics for 34 years in the comic book industry. You might have heard of some of them. X-Force, Cable, Deadpool, Domino, Youngblood, Image Comics. I have Snake Eyes, uh, Dead Game, a G.I. Joe adventure out right now. But to get into comics, you have to be a fan of comics. And I have been a fan of comics for 45 plus years consuming them, uh, being entertained by them, dining out on them. They are in every aspect of my life. I am lucky that my kids are not named Logan, Bucky, you know, and 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 the Enchantress. I mean, or or Wanda or 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 Natasha. I mean, I am into this stuff. And we talk about this every Rob Observations. And today, talking comics, we're gonna talk a big one. We are diving headfirst into a major body of work, a major event that we have uh, not yet discussed, and we could not, you know, look it over. It cannot be dismissed, and we have covered so much of the contributions of this man so far, but we have kept this to the side, and today we are going to deep dive into what was the very first X-Men spinoff, the solo adventures of Wolverine, Wolverine miniseries by Frank Miller and Chris Claremont, released in the late summer of 1982. Wolverine had been the breakout star, the character that had carried the popularity of the X-Men. I know of what I speak. I did not care for the X-Men until Giant Size X-Men number one with the introduction of Colossus and Sunfire and Storm and Nightcrawler and Wolverine. I mean, Wolverine, uh, now he had already appeared in two issues of the Hulk, Battle of the Hulk. He'd made a big splash. Those are huge, momentous issues. Hulk 181 is a giant uh, piece of comic book history now. But suddenly Wolverine next appears alongside the X-Men, representing the Canadian love, next to Sunfire's you know, Japanese love and Colossus Russian love, Storm's African love. They, they had expanded the X-Men, made them more of an international group. Wolverine was the breakout, whether he wanted to be or not. Dave Cockrum, we've covered this, the artist who launched the new X-Men alongside Chris Claremont and Len Wein. He was more in the Nightcrawler camp, his German uh, teleporter. And, and, and he really favored him and wanted him to be the breakout. But, you know, sometimes the stuff that we think is going to hit doesn't. And the stuff that we underestimate blows up. And Wolverine is that guy. And by the time an actual Canadian comes on the book in the form of John Byrne, who follows up Dave Cockrum, he embraces Wolverine because he is a Canadian character. And it, it seems like from that moment on, the, the X-Men blows up. Wolverine goes to the next level. The extra detail that John Byrne crafts in depicting Wolverine is something that every fan goes crazy for. Chris Claremont and John as co-plotters uh, give us some of the greatest Wolverine moments. Him rising from the sewers underneath, you know, the, the Hellfire Club as, as, he has, as he has been dropped down by uh, 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 one of the Hellfire Club members named Leland, drops him, increases his density. He's already adamantium. We think, oh my gosh, Wolverine is gone. But that last page that even my peer group, we all wonder, what would this page go for? Is this a $100,000 page? A quarter of a million dollar page? Uh, the, the, the original art from the Byrne, Claremont, Austin era is just the highest 
amount of value that you're going to get in original art of the last 40 years. That stuff is a hot commodity. And so those prices are always, you know, depicted back and forth. And me and my friends have argued if that is the most important page in the run, one of them at least. But Wolverine, his, uh, his character was front and center in Days of Future Past. And so the character had, I mean, so many great moments. His animosity with Cyclops, his crush on Jean Grey. So it was and natural that Wolverine would get his own spinoff. Honestly, I thought it took a little longer than maybe it should have. But when you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. And they did it right by pairing Frank Miller and Chris Claremont. Frank Miller, you've heard it here on Rob's Observations. He is probably our favorite, my favorite subject. His uh, impact is enormous. Again, he has a new show coming out from Netflix this weekend called Cursed, his take on the King Arthur saga. And again, that exists because he depicted the battle at Themyscira so amazingly in 300. You know, the hot gates, uh, the Spartans, it was huge. And that is Frank Miller, who could take a piece of history and make it like a best-selling graphic novel. That's the magic of Frank. And now he's doing the same thing with King Arthur. Again, the stuff that I grew up with, the guys that were hitting it out of the park as a kid, for me, are the guys who are giving you entertainment today. This is not nostalgia, baby. This is homework. You are doing your homework with me on Rob's Observations. We are walking the walk. We are talking the talk. We are investigating comics history. And Wolverine was this perfect storm. Chris Claremont, best-selling X-Men author. He had been working alongside Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, Paul Smith, Bill Sienkiewicz. Some of the best talents in the business were working alongside Chris. But at the same time that Chris and his army of ridiculous, talented illustrators and storytellers were launching the X-Men, we have covered that Frank had taken over Daredevil and had taken it to all new heights. So Daredevil and Elektra, that entire saga, that has completed itself prior to Wolverine launching. And Frank doing Wolverine was like a, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? The, 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 the wonderkind, the, the, the amazing talent responsible for Elektra and Daredevil, and this all-new terrifying version of the Kingpin and expanding Daredevil's origin with, with, uh, with Stick. He's going to do Wolverine? Like, what? Those four covers alone. It was a four-issue miniseries, each a distinct uh, depiction of Wolverine, him with his claws popping out, him leaping at you, him looking sullen, him geared up with all his crossbows and his gears uh, as he prepares to you know, march into the fortress in the last issue, all of this stuff. These are iconic covers, all four of them. This is an amazing body of work, but how did it come about? How did the two biggest, hottest talents on planet Earth get together? Well, the way Chris Claremont tells it is that they are driving from San Diego Con in 1981. He and Frank are taking a, a, a Hertz rental car. He referred it as the Hertzmobile, his Hertz rental car. They are taking the Hertz rental car up the coast, driving from San Diego to Los Angeles. Now, Chris says it takes him six hours to make this drive. I mean, that is a lot of traffic in 1981. But he and Frank are talking and engaging and, you know, talking about comics. And I'm sure these guys, I mean, Chris has the X-Men. Frank has transformed Daredevil. I can't think of two bigger names in the comics industry at that time other than the mighty John Byrne. So you got two of the industry's biggest are road tripping. They are road tripping. People who go to Comic-Con, uh, the, the, especially all of us who live out here in Southern California, and so many of my friends do, and I've been doing this as I've covered before since I was going since I was 13, 14 years old. 
that Sunday is a little melancholy. It's a little blue. The best weekend of your life that year is over. You're, there are no more comics to buy, no more sketches to, to, to commission, um, no more toys to get. Your bags are full. Your car is packed. You're leaving San Diego. Oh, man, you're looking back like, I love it here. San Diego is so amazing. Matter of fact, in this pandemic, without Comic-Con, even though it's going online uh, next week, uh, my family and I, we're going to drive down to San Diego in the next couple of weeks, days, and just tour around the city um, because my family, my, my, my daughter came in uh, recently and just said, Dad, I'm so bummed. She's 16 years old. All she's ever known is Comic-Con. She goes, Dad, it's the first year I'll be missing Comic-Con. Obviously, she doesn't remember the first two or three that she was in a, a stroller, but ever since then, man, her memories, she brings her friends. My kids bring, bring friends. Comic-Con is a holiday to the comic book community. Fans retailers, um, promoters, and the creators alike. We love it. It's amazing. So reading that Frank and, and, and Chris are leaving Comic-Con, it's, it's the end of the show. They're getting in their rental car. They're going up to Los Angeles for whatever business. Maybe Chris is talking to some producers in 1980 about you know, uh, uh, an X-Men movie. Maybe Frank is interviewing people. Stan was definitely in LA making moves, probably uh, arranged to meet with these guys. They don't really mention what their that their their mission is, but they say their destiny is they are going to Los Angeles. See so Chris Claremont and Frank Miller driving up. Maybe they're going to the Golden Apple Party, uh, that, that that was the the key party in in the in the comics industry for 15 years, thrown by the late Bill Leibowitz and his legendary Golden Apple Store. Whatever the case, they are driving up, and Chris recounts that it got to that point where you know, kind of everything they could share was shared, and he finally decided I'm gonna approach Frank. Now, again, in, in Chris's mind, and he, and he tells in, in this recollection that he knows what a great writer Frank is. His respect for Frank as a writer, he says the first script Frank ever wrote, everybody in the Marvel offices were like, this can't be the first script this guy wrote. Has he been operating under a pen name, doing doing work somewhere else? And he throws off a couple of phony names maybe that, that Frank had been writing under because there's no way somebody this good, you know, is 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 uh, this young, is this good right out the gate? And again, Frank's first issue introduces Electra, and it is a classic, timeless tale that is so well illustrated and written. And so, you know, Frank is hanging out. I figure him with his feet up on the dashboard. Somehow I have Chris driving, and 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 Chris then decides to lean over and say, Hey Frank, why don't why don't you and I do uh do an X-Men project? Why don't you uh why don't you uh do Wolverine for me? Everybody wants Wolverine. And oddly enough, Frank's first reaction to Chris is that he's just, uh, he, he, he thinks that Wolverine has thus far been portrayed semi like a mindless berserker. He's like, eh, you know, he's that angry guy, you know, he's that angry guy. He's that, he's that guy that has the hair trigger temper and he's a hellraiser. And, uh, they joked of all the hot-tempered baseball players that they, they were comparing uh, uh, Wolverine to. Mark Bavaro, Phil McConkley, uh, Joe Morris. This is, this, is, this is who they're, you know, tossing around as that they see Wolverine as depicted as. And uh, said, Frank said, you know, I, I, I'm interested, but, but I'm not sold yet on how we would portray him. And he wants to know, like, what would we do? And so, uh, you know, Frank didn't flat out deny Chris, kind of left the door open, but it had to go beyond Berserker, Psycho Killer, and you know that if you read this miniseries, it goes 
well, well beyond this. Now, I have to pause this right here because before we go further into the Wolverine Ministries, here's something you need, need to know. A, a, a name of an author named James Clavell. No, he has not written any comic books. James Clavell was a best-selling monster success who wrote a book that hit America like a storm, like a hurricane called Shogun. Shogun. It was a bestseller out the gate, 1975. Shogun is the tale of an English navigator who crashes on the shores of Japan in 17th century Japan. So this is the height of the, the Shogun era. And, and this, uh, this English navigator must, you know, enter their society, assimilate and survive. And, and there are some amazing key elements in this. I'll tell you how big Shogun was. My mom bought Shogun. My mom read it. It was a romance. He obviously falls in love with a forbidden, you know, Japanese, uh, uh, woman. And, and she has, you know, royal ties and obligations. And, and this is made into a miniseries. This is how Rob Liefeld encounters it. It is an event miniseries. So it's interesting that one miniseries complements the other miniseries. And again, Shogun is released in 1975, but the TV miniseries launches in 1980, two years prior to Wolverine arriving on our source as this amazing Frank Miller, Chris Claremont collaboration. The, the, the Shogun miniseries went on to be the second highest rated television event in history. It was only after Roots. It had a total cumulative audience on ABC of 120 million eyeballs. Okay. So James Clavell had knocked it out of the park with this amazing, uh, story of what really was a gaijin. I, I would learn this. Richard Chamberlain playing the lead in Shogun is humiliated as this English navigator washed up on the shores and having to assimilate. At one point, the big moment of the, uh, of the miniseries in the opening night is that a guy pees on him and has to sit there and take it. And you're like, wow, man, who's been peed on before? I mean, in 1980, guys, I'm 12 years old. So I am like the other 120 million people watching this. I am enraptured. It's this Western meets Eastern culture. And, you know, he is in this culture that flat out rejects him, has prejudged him as he has prejudged them. But he's, they're alien to him. He's alien to them. And it's how he rises up and ultimately becomes a hero for these people after you know, being this out outlander uh, uh, character, and and again, Shogun was a television event. It was it, it it was all anybody was talking about in 1980 when it launched, and it launched and influenced so many more to come. Richard Chamberlain would be like in every miniseries for the next 10 years, just based on the success of Shogun. Shogun was a bestseller. I am certain, without a doubt, Mr. Chris Claremont had read Shogun, had watched Shogun, had enjoyed and inhaled Shogun. Because without Shogun, we do not get the template for Wolverine. Because what they decide to do together on this journey is to explore the, the idea of a failed samurai, that Wolverine has been this berserker who cannot be stopped, but, but they want to do something that stops him in his tracks, something that robs him of who he is, where he has to start over from square one. And, uh, you know, Wolverine, as he had been depicted, was a just a primal life force, a, a rage machine. And, uh, you know, this, this idea 
that, that, that they would create a sequence of events that led up to a critical moment, you know, where, whereas he was lost and shattered and would have to rebuild himself from the ground up. Now, Frank Miller is fully engaged. He's fully engaged. So you've got this guy who writes and draws his own success stories and following Wolverine, I don't know that Frank works with another writer ever again. He does Ronin. He does Dark Knight. He, he never looks back. He becomes the writer everybody wants to work with. He writes Daredevil from David Mazzuchelli, born again for David Mazzuchelli. He then goes on eventually. He does Electra Lives where he writes and draws it himself. He does Sin City. I mean, he does 300. Frank, in my knowledge, Frank really never did anything like this ever again. He got the sales job of a lifetime from Chris, Chris Claremont. And I'm going to tell you, Chris, I've seen him up close and personal. I was... Uh, around the convention circuit, I've covered this one. Art Adams, as a young man, was hitting all the conventions in Southern California. Chris Claremont was at a lot of those conventions too. And when Chris saw Art's work, you don't think he crafted that Asgardian Wars exactly to be what Art wanted to draw? I'm sure they discussed it. Chris saw those long shot pages. He couldn't believe that someone this talented wasn't drawing an X-Men adventure. Chris was really funny. If you saw him on the convention scene, massive confidence not not a not an ego that would hurt you, but a fun confidence about him and what he was capable, and that people were were falling over themselves to draw the X Men, to draw his X Men. He was the only author of the X Men, so even Walt Simonson did a couple fill-ins. And again, Paul Smith comes out of nowhere because I think Chris Claremont drools all over this animator from Ralph Baskey's studio. Paul Smith comes out of nowhere to dominate comics for one year. He does one year gets ridiculously wealthy on X-Men. This is Paul Smith telling me this himself. Buys the motorbike of his dreams, takes off and rides across America after doing one year with Chris Claremont. And then Chris Claremont would go with John Romita Jr. for a while. And I think all the big guys were kind of otherwise engaged. But the bottom line and the most important thing is Chris always landed the prettiest girls. Okay? If, if great artists are pretty girls in this, that is what he... He knew how to lure people, get them to go on dates. Everybody wanted to go out on a date with Chris Claremont. He would tell you so. They wanted to date his characters. He was driving the Exmon Mobile, and if you wanted to hop in, he would ha ha be happy for you to join him. And like I said, Walt Simonson, Paul Smith, John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, Bill Sienkiewicz, these are all these guys that had jumped in the Exmon Mobile. So now... Chris has driven up to Frank and said, hop on in, buddy. Take a ride with me. And Frank's like, not so fast. Let, 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 let's, let's examine what makes this work. So, uh, you know, who is the Wolverine? What makes him tip? What makes him go? These are the parameters they're going to push. These are, the, these are the boundaries. And, uh, you know, Frank and he crafted this amazing story that takes place, that finds Wolverine revisiting Japan. I say revisiting because in X-Men 118... On their trip around the world, on their way home from the Savage Land and all the different haunts they, they stopped in, X-Men 118 and 119 take place in Japan. They battle Moses Magnum, who's a Power Man villain, who's now taken uh, power up in Japan. But along the way, one night, and this is the brilliance of what Chris and John Byrne had, had, had established, Wolverine wanders across a lonely, sad Japanese beauty who is sobbing and sullen and her name is Mariko Yoshida. And Mariko uh, plays a huge role in the Wolverine miniseries. But when 
when he, we first meet her under the pen of Chris Claremont and John Byrne, uh, you know, Mariko is sad and we realize that her father is this powerful uh, crime lord. And she is ashamed, reluctant to have the ties to her family that she has. And of course, she cannot be seen with Wolverine as much as she is charmed by him. He is, uh, he is another gaijin. He is a stranger. He is forbidden to her. And as much as she is immediately attracted to him, we leave that romance behind. And uh, it, it shows that Wolverine has a tenderness, can attract the, the affections of someone beyond Jean Grey, who's kind of toying with him at that time, doesn't know if she's going to go for it or not, or stick with Scott Summers. That was a great love triangle. And this was a nice little detour as he finds this romance with this, you know, sullen uh, woman, Mariko Yoshida. Now, we pick up on that, and to Chris's, uh, Chris's credit, he really builds this entire story around this notion that Wolverine is gaijin, he is forbidden, and this love will be unrequited because Mariko's father is not going to stand for it. Uh, Wolverine number one, so so Frank, Frank signs on, he goes for the pitch, they work this out together. Chris is cited as the sole writer. Frank is the penciler. Joseph Rubenstein is the anchor. It is a beautiful book. The end result are all the dazzling visuals that you came to expect from Frank on Daredevil. And we're back in ninja territory. You know, the ninjas and the Yakuza and all that Frank brought to Daredevil is on display here. And they're now putting their swords and their arrows through Wolverine instead of Matt Murdock and Elektra. So Chris secures Frank. They built the story around him. They built this conflict. And Chris maintains it is one it is one of the best things he has ever written. And at the end, he says he has been trying to get Frank to do a sequel with him ever since. Of course he did. That this recollection is from 1987. I will wrap this in the end with Frank's recollection of this, also from 1987. But uh what they did in this miniseries is exactly what they set out to do. They rolled back the Berserker Rage, broke Wolverine as a person, broke his heart, and uh, and put him through this gauntlet where he has to redeem himself. Now, ironically, and, and the very best is, we start with Wolverine in the Canadian Rockies, and he's hunting a bear. And that bear and he tangle, and of course, you see feral creature in Logan, battling feral creature in this grizzly bear that, that, that will not be... Uh, taken down without a fight because he's he's been poisoned by 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 you know by the hunters and and so uh wolverine ultimately has to uh take down the bear which has been posing a threat to everyone in the canadian rockies and it's because there was a poison arrow in his back the mark of these hunters wolverine then hunts down the hunters and they are you know reluctant to be told anything rebuked in any way by this little Canadian runt. A uh, guy picks a fight with Wolverine, and that's the last pot fight that that guy uh, picks. Um, you know, because then we pivot to a man who has come to summon Logan to Japan. Mariko has written him. She wants the love of her life to return to her and has uh, provided an escort to bring Logan to Japan. And he arrives in Japan, uh, you know, at Mariko's request. 
And uh, so, so again, we get this great Western opener. He's battling the grizzly bear, you know, and it literally is the way a wolverine would take down a grizzly bear. This wolverine, because it's a wolverine is small and feral and is known for its relentless nature and his bite and his, you know, if you attack it, give yourself up, he is going to just burrow through you. And so now we have a wolverine battling a bear, our, our Logan wolverine. Now, if what I just told you is whatever in any way familiar, it's because you've seen this. Okay, James Mangold made this movie. This miniseries that we are discussing was adapted into 2013's The Wolverine, produced by Hugh Jackman and James Mangold, and 100%, you know, directed by James Mangold, who did Walk the Line, okay? who did the 310 to Yuma. I am a massive Mangold fan. And when he stepped into, you know, the Wolverine-verse, the X-Men-verse, and it was an announced that they were going to adapt the Chris Claremont, Frank Miller bestseller, and that is what you saw. And if you did not know that, you know this now. you Because it begins with that bear conflict as well. It begins with Wolverine in the bar. It fast-tracks the introdu introduction of a very important character that we don't get to later. But in the movie, we meet Yukio much sooner than we meet, uh, meet uh, we meet her in the movie much sooner than we meet, um, we, we, we meet her in the comic book. But uh, this is that adaptation, and 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 James Mangold and Frank Miller. I mean, <laughs> James Mangold and Hugh Jackman did a great job producing this miniseries and bringing it to film. It is. Uh, you know, without the Wolverine, we don't get to Logan. They kind of got to know each other and boom, off to the races with Logan, which blew up and did even better. But again, they combined for the first time adapting this work that we are discussing right now. So again, all of Frank's haunts that he is familiar with and he used to make Daredevil so compelling because again, Daredevil was battling the Owlman, the Jester, Stiltman. I will. I, I don't offend anyone by telling you. Prior to Frank Miller, Daredevil was battling the lamest villains in the Marvel-like rogues gallery. Uh, there, there's a reason the Jester, who is a third-rate Joker, and Owlman, who is a third-rate the Penguin, and Stiltman. I don't know what he is. He's just a guy on giant skyscraper-level stilts. These are not like the best of the best from 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 Marvel comics, right? And when Frank gets in there, he's like, "No, I'm going to introduce my own." Bad guys might, I'm going to take Kingpin, make him scary as hell, this crime warlord, this crime boss who's this mega billionaire with all his riches. And as we have covered in a recent podcast, his depiction of Kingpin was so revolutionary that it became the template for John Burns Lex Luthor when he takes over Superman. Because now Superman is up against a Lex Luthor that resembles Kingpin more than any super scientist he had been previously. So again, that Frank that Frank trademark baby, he is so important. His imprint is massive. And in Wolverine, we are getting the Yakuza and the ninjas that were so successful and something that thrilled all of us fans in Daredevil. Wolverine infiltrates this base on the behest of this businessman who is brokering this entire uh, arrangement concerning Mariko. And when Wolverine gets inside the fortress, he sees Medico is beat up. 
Frank depicts her with a giant swollen cheek and bruised eye, a lazy bruised eye, bashes and gashes all over her face. And Wolverine, it is everything in Wolverine's power not to pop his claws right there. And she says, do not, do not take up for me. She's hiding in the shadows underneath a giant Buddha in this story. And Wolverine encounters her and she tells him that, again, you are forbidden to me, but, but um, you know, you, you cannot act on my behalf. And, and, you know, she says she is being honorable to her family. But uh, Mariko has a husband. You know, he enters the picture and Logan flips out and almost kills him. But she tells him, I am married out of obligation, not out of love. You must leave here. Go home. You should not be here. You cannot take up for me. And uh, as he leaves, he is assaulted by ninja stars, throwing stars that are tipped with poison that can act long enough, even with his healing factor, to knock him out briefly. He awakens in the presence of Mariko's father, Shingen. And uh, Shingen, Lord Shingen, the manor of Clan Yeshida, the father of Mariko, tells Wolverine that you aspire to be part of my daughter's life, but you are arrogant, Gaijin. And again, as a kid, second time I've heard Gaijin, I heard it on Shogun, now I'm hearing it here, Gaijin, okay? I get it, stranger, you know, uh, uh, not welcome. And uh, he, he tells him he is not legitimate, he is not good enough to be with his daughter. Mariko is by Shingen's side and begs her father not to engage him. But he throws Wolverine a wooden sword. And this is rad, because you're like, oh my gosh, haven't seen Wolverine pick up a sword yet. Wolverine is tossed this wooden sword and he says, we are going to duel and I'm going to take you down. And Shingen shows that even as an old ass man, that he is capable. He looks, he's bald like Charles Xavier, but he is in his ceremonial warrior robes. And he goes after Wolverine, hitting him in pressure points that would, that even Wolverine would feel, that even Logan would feel. And, uh, and those pressure points can paralyze or kill, and Wolverine understands what's going on. And then Wolverine decides, I've had enough of this. And his berserker rage kicks in, and he pops his claws, and he then goes to take out Shingen. He has decided, I am not doing this. And Shingen, with his wooden sword, still in hits Wolverine in the neck, in the spine, in the head, in the face, bluntly stopping his berserker rage attack. And Shingen falls and finally kicks Wolverine in the face, defeating him and presents him to his daughter as unworthy. Wolverine is dropped off in the streets of Tokyo following this humiliating and brutal defeat at the hands of Shingen. And he is, uh, you know, kind of struggling to recover from this beatdown when a group of kids attempts to assault him. And that does not go well for these kids. He's still in good enough shape to finish them off and, uh, 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 you know, make his way away from them. But as he stumbles out of this, you know, fray with these kids who want to jump him, he, we meet Yukio, a character that, uh, we get to meet much, much sooner in, uh, in, in the, the movie of, of James Mangold's The Wolverine than we do in the comic. She pops up in the last panel. 
and she tells Wolverine, she lifts him off the ground and says, you are mine. You are mine. Now, here's the thing with Yukio. She was a revelation. She was a character who came off as completely and totally the opposite of Electra. Electra is cool. She is calculated. She is menacing. She is scheming. She is capable. Chris and Frank Miller depict Yukio, not Mariko. Mariko is the love of Wolverine's life. That's why he's in Japan, to defend her honor. And she is trapped in this devil's bargain with her father and, 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 and his the family name in the family business. He's a crime lord. And, uh, and he has just been, you know, he just wiped the floor with Wolverine. Yukio is batshit crazy. She's like an insane Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn without maybe the extra layer of like talking to herself. But uh, Yukio and Wolverine wake up together in Yukio's apartment in to start the second issue. And they are immediately surrounded by these ninjas. And there is a great, huge double page spread something we didn't get in the first issue of frank just uh depicting wolverine flying out of this window with one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen ninjas below him and uh yukio hangs on for dear life and some of the chemistry here is a precursor to what we're going to see in dark knight with dark knight and and the brand new robin that is carrie killy yukio is smaller and more petite and she jumps on Wolverine's back and and they jump out of the window together and it very much is imagery that you will see again in Dark Knight with Carrie Kelly as the female Robin but uh this is where we connect because the Yakuza as de as depicted in Daredevil is a clan called the Hand and here Yukio says we have been attacked by the Hand this is the Hand well Wolverine has had a full night's rest and is be being attacked by the hand, jumps into immediate action, and we see now Wolverine just take these guys out. We see that Yukio is also super capable. Did she shadow him towards the end of the first issue? Because like I said, she's, she appears on the streets at the end of Wolverine number one and introduces herself and says, you're mine, to Logan. Logan and Yukio, this opening eight-page sequence of Wolverine 2 is all the action we can ever hope for. And it shows Yukio now sees the extent and rage of Wolverine's berserker uh, side of himself. And he lays quick waste, quick waste to all these hand ninjas. Now, were they putting him through his paces? I guess we're going to find out. They then retreat to Wolverine's penthouse, which is where he arrived when he came at the behest of Mariko. And what happens from the rest of this miniseries is the, uh, you know, Yukio kind of taking Logan under her wings, teaching him about this culture that he's in, telling him he should get as far away from Mariko as possible, that she is no good, that there's another plan here. And Wolverine is intrigued by Yukio, but obviously very enamored by uh, Mariko. And Yukio and Wolverine at the end of issue two infiltrate Shingen's palace again and they lay waste to all of the samurai and all of the protectors and the teachers and uh, that, that are on the grounds and lots of swords, lots of shogun stuff going down here. Claws versus swords is the theme of this miniseries, Eastern culture and this animal running amongst them. And we see again uh, opposite of issue one, Wolverine more in control, more confident, 
lays waste and slaughters all these shoguns and samurais and in front of Mariko and the last page of issue two, Mariko is aghast. She is shocked. Her reaction um, is she, she is disgusted by what she has seen. She Wolverine is clearly taking all his frustrations from the first issue and the humiliation out on these shoguns and the last page, the, 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 the third panel, which rests underneath the second panel, which is the giant face of Mariko's disgust, is Yukio smiling. She thinks, hey, this is playing right into my hands now. Mariko's going to, you know, not want to have anything to do with him. She's going to reject him. And now Wolverine, issue three, telling us once again he's the best he is at what he does. He is drunk. He is in a bar in Tokyo, and he is wrestling, you know, uh... Uh, a, a group of uh, sumo wrestlers and throwing them out the window and once again kind of taking his rage out and now the man that was dispatched to bring him to Japan on behalf of Mariko comes calling asking for his help and uh, and and Wolverine rejects it decides to walk home with Yukio down the streets of Tokyo, down some back alleys, and another amazing shot where we see once again one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Looks like thirteen ninjas on the roofs below, above, above Wolverine, the roofs above, about to throw their arrows into him. They're stalking him. Then we see Yukio play chicken with a high speed train on the train tracks as they look to cross that. And Yukio talks to Wolverine about her death wishes. And that she, I mean, we see up close and personal just exactly how nuts and crazy she is. But it is attractive to Wolverine because she is living life on the edge. Wolverine has a nightmare of himself being slaughtered with a hundred arrows at the hands of Shingen. Except we pull all the way back and it's not. It's the hands of Mariko who is firing the arrows on him. This is what's going on in his drunken dreams and stupor when he comes up and wakes up. Yukio is revealed to being to working in conjunction with the hand. But she isn't having it anymore. She is digging on Wolverine. So she and uh, Wolverine, you know, take off and go back to his apartment. Wolverine decides to follow who he believes uh, is, is stalking him and comes upon Yukio, realizing she does not have his best interest in hand and she never has, even though she professes that they're soulmates. The hand surrounds Wolverine. He is not in costume. He is in his jacket and his khakis, and he goes to town, and now this isn't shoguns. This isn't samurais. This isn't, you know, Mariko's father, Shingen. He has taken these guys out. So the action choreography is what sets this entire book apart. Frank Miller, uh, I've talked about it before, the action choreography. Frank Miller is the, uh, I've said this again, he is the John Wick guys of comics. He is the Sam Hargrave who did Extraction with Chris Hemsworth. This new age of stunt man turned director in Hollywood because of the incredible action that they can um, depict. And, and it is a part of what takes our breath away why Keanu Reeves has been reborn as this, for a third time, as this middle-aged, badass, hand-to-hand -hand combatant assassin. No weapon is foreign to him. No, no fighting style is lost on him. That is what Frank Miller was. And this book, if I haven't been clear, is full of them. And the sequence I'm going through in the third issue is yet another, maybe the fourth or fifth of the series, of this amazing hand-to-hand -hand combat. All these ninjas 
battling Wolverine. This has inspired me my entire career. When I want to grow, when I grow up, I want to be Frank Miller. It's amazing. Once again, Wolverine stands victorious, and he believes that this has all been part of Shingen's plan to humiliate him, and he is now going to put his costume in, and issue four, he will infiltrate, and he will take down Shingen. Shingen hearing that Wolverine is coming for him and sending him menacing notes in a box that says, Tonight, Shingen demands that the hands surround him and protect him. And, and, and now we venture into an, an enormous new territory for Wolverine when he straps on a bow, an arrow, knives, uh, uh, katanas, crossbows, throwing stars. Wolverine gets incredibly jacked up for this battle inside the palace. He knows that an army is waiting for him, and to battle that army, he must become that army. And Yukio is on the opposite side of this. Her long game was she was working for the hand. She is doing it for a paycheck. She is going to help take Wolverine down. Well, Wolverine throws a wrench in that, making his way through all of them. And we see that Mariko is not so clean either, guys. And maybe this was all along a plot to wrest control of this empire from her father. Hit The father meets Wolverine, not with a wooden sword, but with a full-fledged samurai sword katana. And they go at it. And he is as relentless with steel as he was with the wooden sword, where he hit pressure points and knocked Wolverine into paralysis. Now he is slicing and dicing and cutting and drawing blood, and Wolverine is overwhelmed and using his claws to defend in a defensive posture, crossing them to block the blades that Shingen is attacking him with. But finally, in a move that, uh, in, 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 in a sequence that reminds me very much of John Borman's Excalibur when Modred uh, sticks the sword, sticks the, sticks the spear through his father, King Arthur, and Arthur walks down the length of the spear to end his bastard son's life. Wolverine takes the sword on the shoulder, grips it, allows Shingen to get close enough to him and slice him on the shoulder. Wolverine then pins the shoulder to his the sword to his shoulder, the blade, the steel is in his shoulder, and he outreaches his hand. And we are to understand in no uncertain terms, his hand prior to the snicked, the sound that his claws make when they are unsheathing, he sticks his hand in Shingen's face, and the next panel we see just his eyes and his outstretched arm cut off at the wrist. We don't see, we just hear the snick, but Wolverine's eyes are specifically colored blood red. He has ended Shingen. And do you think that Mariko is sad? No. She seems relieved. Her father had brought shame on Clan Yeshida. By his actions, he had forfeited his right to touch this blade, much less wield it at all. And uh, this honor goes to you, Wolverine. She basically says, thank you. Thank you for taking out my father. And we all feel like we've been a little used by our good friend, Mariko. But Mariko does Wolverine a solid, says, let's get married. And the entire miniseries ends with the X-Men back in Westchester, back at Xavier School, receiving the invitation Lady Mariko of Clan Yashida will be marrying Logan. And a hand-scribbled note on the invitation says, Hey, elf, that's a nod to Nightcrawler. Don't forget the beer, RSVP. This wraps up in a two-parter where Mariko 
uh, and Wolverine are set to get married. Yukio rears her head again, creates chaos. It's a brilliant two-parter. I think it's X-Men 171, 172, 172, 173. Pardon my, you know, out-of-touchness, but the, at the end of the day, it is a fantastic, amazing story that wraps up this story that Frank Miller and Chris Claremont started. Because if you're Chris Claremont, you don't want this to end. Frank signed on for four issues. You told an open-ended story. You introduced Shingen. You ended his life at the end. Wolverine has found his own personal honor, but he has also worked on behalf of the love of his life. But was he set up? Kind of feels like it. But they're in love. They're going to marry. But in the uh, wrap-up in the X-Men issues, the Silver Samurai, a long-standing Marvel bad guy, not exclusive to the X-Men, and Viper, uh, who is an enemy of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, part of HYDRA, they infiltrate the scene. Mariko accepts her role as a crime lord, as a crime boss, and Wolverine and Mariko's story ends at that point in time for many years to come. The success of Wolverine, this miniseries, cannot be underscored. It was a massive hit. It was a number one seller. I can only imagine it did close to 350,000, 400,000 units at a time where that was like selling a million copies. Uh, Frank Miller would only cement that he was the go-to blockbuster uh, visual depictor. It, he's not just an artist. Neil Adams drew beautiful faces and figures, but Frank slowed panels up, sped them up, changed the pace in which you enacted and interacted with these pages and these figures. He was a master of the form. He had really learned his craft. We've talked about influences before. So much of his figure work is due to Gil Kane. He learned from Gil Kane. He applied Gil Kane's anatomy, the long trunk, the 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 uh, long waist, the long thighs. Everybody in Wolverine, in, in even Wolverine, who, who's supposed to be a runt, everyone's leggy. Everyone's leggy in Frank Miller's work uh, up until this point. Daredevil, Elektra, Wolverine, Yukio. Everyone's leggy, lanky. They have very athletic builds. Even again, when they're supposed to be short, kind of opening the door. Because uh, I never really read this thinking he was short, but again, this work is adapted beautifully by James Mangold and uh, Hugh Jackman in The Wolverine. It kind of squelches at the end with the weird silver samurai twist and trying to get Wolverine's immortality and rejuvenate himself. That all seemed like a weird Fox note that like, <clears throat> we need a giant robot transformer a la their version of the silver samurai to battle, battle Wolverine at the end. But for three quarters of a movie, The Wolverine is a wonderful adaptation. So what are we saying again? Frank Miller. Frank Miller influenced Chris Nolan. Those Batman, those Dark Knight movies reflect Frank Miller's influence. Zack Snyder, his Ben Affleck depiction, his Batman is a la Frank Miller. The Batman animated series doesn't exist without Frank Miller electrifying and inspiring it, you know, with, with Dark Knight and with Year One. And, and we don't, I mean, Batman with Michael Keaton and, and Joker doesn't even get off the ground unless Dark Knight is on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and getting critical critical raves. Then Frank Miller does a four-issue stop in the world of the X-Men, tells this very Frank Miller-esque story, this very Eastern influence, both he and Chris, very influenced by James Clavell's Shogun, the Gaijin, you know, entering this strange world and being the outcast and earning the love of the woman and toppling, you know, the, the opposing warlords. Um, great stuff. Just killer stuff. It's, it's amazing. Get your hands on these four issues. They were, um, you know, four months that, that rocked the comics industry and showed that outside of X-Men, you know, Marvel had a franchise. Wolverine would get his own series a few years later. 
and never looked back. And Wolverine became the number two or the number one best-selling X-Men uh, concurrent with what was going on in the pages of the X-Men. Wolverine was always the breakout. Uh, in my in my own way, I believe Chris wanted to show that Wolverine was more a byproduct of him. It had been so much um, put at John Burns doorstep and a buddy of mine the other day was talking about do you, how competitive do you think these guys are and we talked about the different panels we went through to as teenagers and listening to claremont talk and listening to john byrne talk and you read these interviews and very much these guys were competitive and john byrne gave an interview to the comics journal where he says that he resented how frank how chris claremont was reluctant to elevate him to the to the role of co-plotter and that he had to in his his words john byrne's words in this comics journal interview he had to break Chris's arms to make it happen, whereas on Captain America, Roger Stern was more than happy to put the co-plotter status on Jern. In fact, John Byrne didn't feel he even like deserved it on Captain America, but he very much felt like he deserved it. It was what drove them apart, and so much of Wolverine was established as popular and insanely popular and made him the fan favorite under John Byrne, who we've already covered. Dave Cockrum has gone in interviews and said, I wasn't that interested in Wolverine. I knew when I came back to the book, I had to focus on Wolverine. But prior to that, he wasn't my favorite. He was kind of annoying. And and John is the one who gave him so much life. And Chris, sweet talks, pulls up in that sweet ride. It's called the X-Men. It's called the big royalties, called the big, big, big ticket. You know, the only book that outsold Daredevil was X-Men. So he's telling Frank, come on, buddy. This is, this is the real deal. Fly the uh, X-Men fly the x-men skies baby this this is the way to way to travel frank signs on he does basically 88 pages and this thing is a classic now i'm going to read to you what frank said at the end frank's uh comments in 1987 he wishes that everyone who's checking this out my copy is dog-eared ratted sunburned old this is a worn copy of the wolverine trade and frank in the back says i hope you found this this i hope that this is the first comic book you've read in a while I hope you found it on a shelf in a real bookstore and you took a chance on it. I hope a lot of people are picking up comic books for the very first time. You see, a lot of people think comic books are just for kids, like Saturday morning cartoons, and many of them are, though they're usually better drawn and better written. That's great, but it's hardly the whole story. The Andy says, I hope you've enjoyed The Wolverine, because he doesn't mention Wolverine. He goes on another commercial about you should buy comics, and he ends with that. But this is where he mentions specifically, I hope you've enjoyed The Wolverine. Chris Claremont and I had a lot of fun working on it, just remember, if this is your first comic book in a long while, comic books is a form for telling stories as versatile and full of promise as any other. Try another. Frank Miller, Los Angeles, 1987. So, Dark Knight, Daredevil, Ronin. We have covered this era of Frank Miller. And Claremont and Frank Miller made an instant classic. This is held in the highest regard. I was fortunate a few years back to meet with the art collector who had all of the covers in his portfolio. He didn't tell me he had them. In fact, he had all of the Paul Smith covers on the X-Men as well, which include the two that dovetailed the story that involved the Silver Samurai. And uh, I couldn't believe I was holding history in my hands. These 11 by 17 boards drawn by Frank Miller, embellished, inked by Joseph Rubenstein. And I was like, oh my gosh, you have all these. And I said, yeah, 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 I've, I've had them. And it was just wonderful to interact with them, see the black and white line art. Because um, everybody remembers. First big spinoff. Miniseries were happening. The short form way of telling stories was not always so. It happened here in the 80s. We covered Contest of Champions. Wolverine was shortly thereafter. Marvel had found this blockbuster short form uh, platform format 
to give you these isolated stories, new number ones, short investment, huge return. And the Wolverine uh, by Frank and Chris went to further expand and, uh, and enhance this character. They did exactly what Frank wanted. They took him. They broke him down. They broke his heart. He was rejected. He was humiliated. He was taken in by this crazy lady Yukio who played on his affections, turned out to be a Judas. He then decides, screw it. I'm taking them all down. No one's going to make a fool of me. I'm in a foreign land. He arms up with the crossbows, the, sh the, 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 the swords, all of it, and engages in order to regain his honor. And he is not having Shingen's disrespect. And ultimately, though Shingen proves himself to be an adept fighter, Wolverine tricks him in the end, drawing him just close enough to finish him off with those claws. And we're kind of humiliated too, like how it is an issue too when Mar Mariko is the audience surrogate and sees Wolverine lose his shit and kill all these samurai and shoguns and goes, oh my gosh, this is frightening. But maybe at that point, Mariko knew this is what I need to take out my dad. This is a classic. Um, if you can see Shogun, that miniseries, the first time that American audiences interacted with this type of this type of story on that grand of a scale, you should check it out. Richard Chamberlain and Shogun is a precursor what, for what Chris and Frank would do. We talk influences, nothing happens, you know, in isolation. Everything is influencing everything else at all time. Frank Miller, uh, he's a face on Mount Rushmore. My kid asked me today who I'd have on my Mount Rushmore. I don't care that Mount Rushmore is controversial right now. I am speaking of the classic sense of a mountain with four notable figures from anything we talk about the Mount Rushmore of basketball, of football, you know, sports, politics. Frank Miller's on my Mount Rushmore. He's that big. He's that important. Um, again, you cannot even begin to say that he is a nostalgia act. This guy's work is still resonating. The Logan came out seven years ago, okay? And it was the precursor, again, I mean, The Wolverine came out seven years ago, 2013. It was the precursor to Logan. And, uh, you know, Daredevil on Netflix came out 2015 uh, through 2018. Three seasons, all based on Frank. Frank's got a new show, Cursed, that is adapted on work we have not yet seen. But it... Uh, dabbles in Arthurian legend and Excalibur and that is where I live and breathe and I'm excited and Frank Miller is my guy this yarn that he did with Chris they brought out the absolute best in each other when Frank when Chris says in his foreword that he is super proud I'll read that last paragraph so Frank and I took the character and from him built the story using Wolverine to define and conflict and then the structure of the story it was so much fun one of the best I've ever written and I'm happy to maintain with pardonable pride one of the best I've ever seen Frank Miller draw. This became what all of us in comics strive for, that special moment where a writer's vision merges with an artist's vision, the two complementing each other, strength building on strength, counterbalancing weaknesses, to create a whole which is much, much greater than the sum of its parts. We put Wolverine through the ringer and loved it, and we hope so did our readers. And now, in that final analysis, is what this crazy industry is all about. And in parentheses, now, if there was only some way of persuading Frank to do it again. Chris Claremont, New York City, 1987. Hey, I'm there for it. Frank, you want to do a sequel with Chris? I'm sure he's up for it. I'm up for it. You can reach me on Twitter, on social media, at Robert Liefeld, the full name. You can reach me on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. Robert Liefeld on Twitter, Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Blue checks by both of them because that tells you that I'm not the phony baloney fake accounts. 
And uh, I'm all over Facebook, social media. Reach out to me. Continue to uh, talk to me. Let's talk comics. Let's have a good time. Thank you for taking this journey with me. Today was the Wolverine, and it was a blast. Uh, stay safe. Take care of yourself. We will talk again soon.